told you we wanted to look into first and second Thessalonians, so that is exactly what we will attempt to do. So are we ready to record? Oh, praise the Lord. Okay, Acts chapter 17. Okay, Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse number one. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the scriptures opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. So let's have a word of prayer. We'll start with it and then work our way through. Father, we're grateful again to have another opportunity to be able to study the Scriptures Lord, it's nice to be able to live as we do live in these last days, knowing that your son is soon to come. But now as we look into the scriptures, God, we're asking for insight, understanding, make us wise hearted. And Lord, help us to to live out these days as you prepared for us, as we live close to you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. This we're calling Paul's mission to the Thessalonians. If you've ever wondered what it was like when Paul went into a different town to open up a church or to begin a movement and to start ministering to people, you can see it here in chapter 17. In the preceding chapter, he had to deal with some some difficulties from having cast the devil out of a a little girl. And then he and Silas, uh, they 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 ended up there in jail and were singing and and uh, and, and praising God and a lot of wonderful things were taking place, and even there was an earthquake that was connected with uh, the, the escape that they got from the, the jail. But when they finally left Lydia's house at the end of chapter 16 and made their way into Thessalonica, it's at that point that Paul comes in and spends 21 days preaching to them and teaching, to, teaching them. So that tells you he, he had three weeks of explaining to them, according to verse 3, that Christ needed to suffer. That goes with his statement in 1 Corinthians fifteen three that Jesus died for our sins. So we know he preached the sufferings of Christ and the death of Christ. Then he preached, according to verse 3 here, the resurrection of the Lord. So that's important. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that if someone denies the resurrection, they're not even Christian. He said their faith is in vain. if They deny that Jesus literally was raised from the dead. And he said, the, the Christ or the Jesus that I preach to you is the, is the, uh, the Christ. Amazingly, verse 4 says, some of them believed. Now, now, this is what he did in a synagogue. Now, I don't know how many of us would even try something like that. To go into a synagogue and preach to them with the belief that even though they're in the synagogue, they do not know the Savior, they're lacking the Lord Jesus Christ, and they need to be saved. They need to be saved. Acts chapter 17. And so verse 5 says, But there were some Jews who did not believe, and they were moved with envy, and they got together and congregated with a bunch of people who were the worst kind of folks of society, and they went and assaulted the house of Jason. Now, now this man Jason 
We're not sure exactly who he is, but in Romans, at the end of Romans, it does tell us that, that Paul identifies a gentleman by the name of Jason who was his relative. So this, this very well could be a relative that Paul was, uh, you, whose house he was using in order to proclaim, proclaim the gospel. But the riot got so great that the folks start saying, look, them people that have turned the world upside down, they've come here also. Now what happened when Paul went into a place? Is either revival or a riot. People were saved, people were healed, demons were cast out, lives were changed. And verse 7 of Acts chapter 17, the people were saying, this man is preaching that there's another king, and he was. He's preaching that Jesus was the king. And the, they troubled the people. Now, Paul ended up leaving this area, and you can see uh, verse number 11, he went down into this place of Berea, and then you can see in the succeeding verses that the people heard that he was there. And so the Thessalonians went over there and tried to cause problems for him there and get him kicked out of that place. Now, the reason this background is important is because when we get into first Thessalonians, you can see the context of how the church was formed. It was formed out of affliction. It was formed amid persecution. It was a riot. That had taken place, yet Paul came and resided in the midst of them, and he refused to leave even though people were attacking him and Jason. And the scripture says they came and assaulted the man's house. So imagine if a mob of people came to your home, your home and started throwing rocks at your house and, and, and maybe started tearing it all apart. But Paul stayed because as an apostle, he understood that his role in ministry was not to flee just because he had trouble, but to stand there. And proclaim the gospel. Now let's go to First Thessalonians now chapter number 1. Obviously Paul had been telling these people about the coming of the Lord during his mission to them. Because in First and Second Thessalonians, every chapter has something to say about the coming of the Lord. So this means that whenever we want to refer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ or speak of the rapture, we can always find information inside of First and Second Thessalonians. The coming of the Lord means when the Lord returns, the church is going to be gathered unto him. When the church is gathered unto him, according to the book of Revelation, it's at that point that Jesus is going to receive a book. And he's going to open that book. Seven seals will be on that book. And as he opens it up, a lot of different things will be taking place here on earth. But these things cannot occur until the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is gone. How do you know that? Because the Bible says at the end of Revelation chapter 5 that that period of Revelation is called the wrath of the Lamb. And Romans says we're not appointed to wrath. Thessalonians says we're not appointed to wrath. There are people today running across this nation and they're telling people that the day of the rapture is going to take place September 21st. And they're saying that's the day of the Feast of Trumpets. And they've got people all worked up into a frenzy that, that the Lord is coming back on that day. And then you've got other people saying he's coming back on the 23rd because they say the, the, the astral configurations in the heavens are going to demonstrate Revelation chapter 12. 
And so that's going to be the appropriate time. And, and that's when it's all going, going to come together. But folks, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I can, I can predict to you when, for you when the Lord's going to come. And Matthew 24 says he's coming in the hour you think not. And Matthew 24 says there's nobody that knows the day or the hour that he's going to come. So whenever you hear somebody setting a date, you can just be assured that it's not when the king is coming back. And then furthermore, even though I'm not even teaching on the, on the book of Revelation, uh, a, a person who would read that would understand that the things that unfold starting in Revelation 6 going all the way to the end do not occur until the book is opened. The book isn't open until Jesus receives that. So this whole idea that what's occurring in the heavens is a reflection of Revelation 12, it, it, it doesn't make any sense at all because those things cannot happen until the church is gone. Until the church is gone. Now, First Thessalonians 1, then, Paul, Silas, and Timothy unto the church, at, church of the Thessalonians. We just looked at how that thing began with Paul preaching a mission to the folks there that were Jewish originally. In this letter, he speaks of God's grace, which is his power, his favor, his energy to transform lives. And he, he speaks of peace. And peace, of course, is something that we receive in our relationship with the Lord. Romans says we, re, we now have peace with God, access into grace. Then Paul says in another place, we now have the peace of God. So we have peace with God. We have the peace of God. And then he speaks of how we've received this from God, the Father and the Lord. Well, quite naturally, if anybody's going to have grace and peace multiplied to them, it needs to come from someone who's in possession of grace and peace. And God is able to give you far more than you can even conceive and ask for. So whatever you're passing through, God has grace to sustain you. And grace to help you in your most difficult times. So using the, the first person plural in, in verse two, he then says concerning him, Silas and Timothy says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. How often do you pray for Christians in your church, different churches? How often do you take the time to pray for those that uh, may be passing through different trials? If, if he says we give thanks to God, and then he says, making mention of you in our prayers, then that tells you that praying and thanksgiving are two different things. See, if a, if a child comes up to you after you've given them something, and they say to you, thank you, they're not praying to you. They're thanking you. See? But, but if they come up to you and they ask you for something, and they're petitioning you, and they're bringing a request to you, that's to present a, a prayer, see, a petition. Supplication. They come and supplicate. Will you buy this for me? So when you, when you talk to God, then you have to understand there are two aspects to our relationship with him. We, we can certainly thank him all day long for what he's provided for us. If you're happy about having health, you ought to be thankful. You know, display an attitude of gratitude. If, if you're happy that you're gainfully employed, that the Lord has kept you, and provided a roof over your head, you should be able to say to God sometime, Father, thank you. Because if you enjoyed hearing it from little people and the, the kids, and, and your, your parents enjoyed teaching you to say that to adults, then how much more would your Heavenly Father like to hear you say thank you sometimes? And there are people who go weeks 
and don't say thank you to God. And I think sometimes that's because they don't think that God has given them anything. They, they tend to think they're self-sufficient. And what they have, they've gained on their own. But he says we give thanks to God, making mention of you in our, our prayers. So the, the Christian then should have a, a genuine prayer life. Now, I've always taught, and I really do believe, that, that prayer is to the believer what breathing is to this human body. If, if you sat there right now, and I challenge you if you want to do it, if you just decided, you know what, I'm going to hold my breath until the end of this Bible study. I, I, I guarantee you, you're going to fall off that chair. Yeah, you're going to fall off that chair because oxygen is necessary to the vitality of your life. You're, you're animated by, by oxygen. That becomes something like a power inside of you. And that's what prayer is for the believer. The man or woman that will not talk to God, have a relationship with God, have a devotional time where God is able to talk to them because they're talking to God. I'll show you a Christian life that, that is barren and dry and cold, brittle. But the man or woman who can spend time with the Lord and just out of the depths of their heart. Father, I'm just asking you, bless me as I begin this day. Help me, God, as I go about my day-to-day affairs. Like the little kids say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Father, I'm laying down on this bed. As David said in the Psalms, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray. Paul says in verse three, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but all of us in here are making memories every day with how we live as Christians. He says there are three things he's remembering. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope. Faith, hope and love there. First Corinthians 13 and 13. Now abideth these three. The greatest of these being being love. What is faith? Faith is something that rests on the past. Because you believe in something that's already occurred. You believe that Jesus died for you. You believe that his death for you was vicarious in that he died in your place. It was a substitutionary death. All of us in here are guilty of sin. But although we're guilty of sin, the Lord provided for the penalty of our sin by laying all of the blame and the guilt and the sting of it upon his son. So Jesus gets on the cross. He dies in our place. And because he has died in our place, we believe that all of the guilt and the shame has been rolled off on him. And now we're free once we become Christians. And that's what faith is. It's resting on the finished work of Jesus in the past. Since it's finished, it's completed, it's fulfilled, there's no sense in me worrying about my past sins anymore. No matter how much the devil comes and points it out to you. See? So that's what faith is. Well, well then, how does love work? Well, love is an act or action in the present. So we, we do this now. Scripture says faith worketh by love. So since I believe that Jesus died for me, I accept that I'm a debtor to Christ. I'm so in love with him. I love the people that he died for. So I'm going to show my love to people that I come in contact with. And of course, you've heard people say love isn't love unless you give it away. I I go even further and tell you, you don't even know that you have the capacity to walk in love until you get around people who are not seemingly lovable. 
Yeah. Once you get around some people that are not nice, that's when you find out whether or not you really, really can love. To look, to, to hang around with me all day is not a challenge to your faith. Okay? I don't bother anybody. I, I hope not. Okay, so, so <laughs> I had to look at the wife. So, so to, to hang around with, with us, you know, we could lock ourselves in a room and we could spend the next two weeks in here. And chances are pretty good we're going to get along fairly well. There may be a few people that get a little stir crazy, but we will we'll get along fairly well. But if, if we lock you in a room with the kids of some unregenerate people who don't know Christ, or, or you get locked in a room with some of the people that you work with every day that you don't always get along with. Then we find out whether or not 1 Corinthians 13 actually matters to you. Because the Bible says love doesn't keep a record of wrongdoings. Don't you like that one? Oh, I love that one. When people try to remind you what you did wrong, you say, hey, wait a minute. You can't keep a record. That was yesterday. It's a new day. His mercies are new every morning. Can't bother me. Okay, so faith rests on the past. Love has to do with the present, but hope looks to the future. Whenever you read the phrase, the blessed hope or the hope of the Lord's coming, it always, always has to do with the future. Because hope has to do with something you don't possess. It has not materialized just yet. And, and that's, a, that's a powerful thing. I believe when a man or woman stops hoping, they die very often. You see people when they retire and, and, and they no longer have a reason to get out of bed in the morning and they just retire to a lazy boy chair and then sometimes they're out of here within just a, a, a few short years and everybody said, well, I'm telling you, he was strong. She was strong as an ox the whole time they were working. But once they just kind of settled down and didn't do anything anymore, all they did was talk on the phone and gossip with a few people. It just seemed like they got out of here pretty quick, you know, no more. They weren't hopeful, you know. But if, if you recognize that God has called you to be a witness for him in this earth until you die, then you have a reason for your being. Psalm 150 says, let everything that hath breath do what? Praise the Lord. So you have, you have, a, you have a vocation to praise God. As long as there is breath in your body, there is purpose in your existence to praise God. Don't ever lose sight of that. You always have a reason, reason to be here. And tomorrow morning, if you wake up and, and you get out of bed and you don't know exactly what you ought to do that day, then just start with something simple like praising God. That's, that's the first point. Well, he says that, that all of this, the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, so that's where our hope is. It's, it's in the Lord, and it's continually. Everything we're doing, this work of faith and labor of love, is in, the, is in the presence of God. It's before his eyes, and he's the one that is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. He sees what you do behind the scenes when you think no one else pays attention. Because there, there are times when all of us would like to hear someone say, Thank you. Did a good job. Get a pat on the back. But you know, there's some people not wired like that. They just don't extend praise very well. I mean, if they give it, you just about have to pry it out of them. And they give it grudgingly. But I give you my word that one day you'll stand before the Lord and the Lord, he's going to reward you for your faithfulness. 
You say, well, that doesn't make it any easier here. I'm not trying to make it easier here. I'm just telling you what you can hope for in the future. He's going to do something great for you there. But if you continue to work for God and walk with God now, then there's always the expectation that someone will recognize what you're doing, even if you don't think they're paying attention. There are men all across this earth who just want a little bit of praise for just all the work they do around the house, cooking, cleaning, you know, washing clothes, whatever they're doing, those kind of things. There are ladies all over, all over the nation that, 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 that want just a little praise for all they're doing, you know, working hard, 60-hour weeks, that kind of a thing, bringing home the bacon, frying it up in a pan and everything else. And yeah, maybe I've got that in reverse. Well, verse, verse 4 then says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, election, let's not permit that word to confuse us. It does not mean that somewhere up in the heavens that all the saints up there are voting on whether or not people can get saved here on planet Earth. That's not what it means. The, the word election is simply connected with those who are chosen in Christ and they are believers. There are some people who go so far as some of the people during the Reformation period who still cling to some of those teachings have this idea that God predetermined from the foundation of the earth that there will be a, a elect group of people, small number of people out of the mass of people that would be born and that small number would be saved. So they'd say, well, those are the elect. So people like John Calvin, Martin Luther, some of them held to held to that that belief. And then um, then with with that belief that there's only elect that say, then you start having to ask the question, OK, what do you do with the verses like John three sixteen? I'll tell you what you do. You, they don't teach them. They don't teach it or you just modify it. So when the scripture says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, they'll modify it and say, well, God so loved the world of the elect. See, he only loved the ones he predestined. Then you have the verse over there in First John chapter 2 that talks about how Jesus Christ gave himself to be the propitiation for our sins, not only our sins, but also for the sins of the world. Then they say, well, that too includes just the elect. So they make it seem like God doesn't care anything about sinners. That's not Paul's teaching here. Paul's teaching only refers to those people who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have become part of the elect of God. So Jesus' death on the cross was not just for a small number of people. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient for all, but it's only effective or efficient for those who believe. See, that's what that means, for those who believe. The man or woman who has no trust or faith in God in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross is not part of the elect group. But if you love God with your whole heart, you are. Remembering what we read in Acts chapter 17, Paul then tells us how he came to them. He said the gospel came not to you just in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. Now, Thessalonia was a city originally named after Alexander the Great's half-sister. 
Once Alexander the Great died at a very young age, his successors were fighting over his empire to see who would be able to take over these different parts. But this area subsequently fell into the dominion of the Romans. And so it became one of the capital cities of the Roman district. So it had Greco-Roman religions, Greek gods, Roman gods mixed together. And there were a lot of different Greek and Roman cults that people worshipped. They were a part of different deities, statues, and things of that, that kind of a nature. Uh, the belief that, that the gods had physical relationships with humans. So Zeus, or Jupiter, for the Roman side, had relationships with people. And, and that's why in Acts chapter 14, I think, one of those, one of those chapters, Paul and Barnabas prayed for somebody, a miracle broke out, and the people start saying the gods have come down to us, and they named one Jupiter and the other Apollo. Those were two gods. They looked at, they looked at what Paul and, and Barnabas were doing. They said, oh my God, nobody can do these supernatural things unless they're gods. See? So when Paul said, our gospel came to you not only in word, he said there was some supernatural demonstration. If the Bible is taught, and all it is is a, um, I don't want to say this. If, if the Bible is presented to you as though it's only good for doctrinal substance, meaning that the point of it is just to give you some information and insight on what, on what God is like or something like that, then your Christian life may not go too far. You, you have to be able to see that this book that worked then still works now. People repented in ancient times and they can still repent of their sins today because of the gospel. People were healed in ancient times and they can still be healed today. People had visions thousands of years ago. God can still produce visions today. If the only thing the Bible is good for in your mind is just to hear a good teaching or a good sermon, then your relationship with God becomes nothing more than somebody standing at a blackboard teaching geometry. Imparting information, imparting data, but not imparting anything that's actually going to change your life. How many times have, have, have people gone through school and they knew they were going to grow up and be farmers and they thought to themselves, why in the world do I have got to learn calculus? Why do I have to take algebra trig? How do you put this on a plow handle? See? They, they couldn't make, make the connection or the correlation. But farmers have to do a, a lot that has to do with math. Understand? Big figures, large numbers that they're, they're, they're dealing with. So the, the Christian then, when we take the word of God and we begin to apply it to our life, it can't be just a sermon. This word that changed Peter's life when Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, is the same kind of word that transforms your life and makes you a better person. Turns you into a totally different creature. And the scripture says that you're born again and you become a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. But he says it's, it's also in power. If Paul did not believe the gospel, the substance of the gospel could yet produce the power of God, he would never have gone into these different places to preach. He knew these folks were going to try to kill him. But he believed that they tried to kill me. God's big enough and strong enough to save me and deliver me supernaturally. So what are some examples in the Bible of God delivering and God using his power to help people? Acts chapter 12, Peter was in prison. He fell asleep. He was sleeping between some soldiers. The angel came and kicked him and said, get up. We're getting out of here. 
The church folks were back at home praying. Peter walked out, still thinking he was sleepwalking. He walked out. The gates opened up. And then he realized this isn't a dream. This is the power of God setting me free from jail. He went to the prayer meeting. See, That's the power of God. The man at the gate called Beautiful. He was sitting there and, and he said, he said, alms for the poor. He's rattling his little can, alms for the poor. And, and, and Peter and John said, we don't have any money to give you. He said, we, we do have something you might want. It, it won't fit in that can, though. And, and so they said, such as we have, we give unto you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And they grabbed that man. And when they grabbed him and started pulling him up, power was going into him as the man was getting up. And before you know it, he was up leaping and praising God. They believed there was power to this. We don't ever want to forget that. In fact, Tiffany and I were talking the other day and we were making a statement. How can anyone go overseas and do missions and not believe in the power of God? How can you go to Africa? How can you go to the Far East? How can you go down into the jungles of South America where there's so much witchcraft and animism and cannibalism? And stuff like that. How can you go there and not believe that God does supernatural things? Be near impossible, you know. Be impossible. There was a, a man back in the 50s uh, by the name of Tommy Hicks. Maybe some of you heard of Tommy Hicks. He, he, he had a vision one time that, that he was preaching to multitudes of people in South America. So Tommy Hicks went to Chile. First, he left America, went down to Chile, and, and God opened up a series of doors for him, and he started preaching, and he had large groups of people coming out. Well, one thing led to another. He ended up in Argentina. Now, this, this man, Tommy Hicks, he had been preaching to masses of, of uh, large masses of people, and he just went to an embassy somewhere and put in a request to meet the president of Argentina. Just just filled out some paperwork, and can you believe the man received an audience with the president back in the 50s? So he goes, and he's, he's talking to the president, and the president said, well, is there anything we, we can do for you? After he had witnessed to him and told him about the Lord, he said, I'd love for you to open up the stadium, uh, the largest stadium that you have here in the country, and allow me to preach the gospel. So for 30 days, Tommy Hicks, back in 1953, 54, 55, he preached in the largest stadium in Argentina that held 180,000 people. They had 200,000 people inside and 200,000 people on the outside for over 30 days. They said more than between three and four million people came to that crusade. But you know what was fascinating about it? The president and, and other people and dignitaries sitting up on stage. Tommy Hicks would preach the gospel and then afterwards stand up and just pray a very simple prayer and while he's praying, people started screaming, people started yelling, blind eyes were being opened, crippled people were getting up, made whole. Well, there's a man that believed, very simply, that the God that was in Scripture is a God that still operates today. Think about that. See, Tommy Hicks. Well, he, he says here in verse number five, and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. When the gospel is proclaimed, as we believe it should be proclaimed, the Spirit of God places within us a strong confidence 
A strong internal reliance that that leads us to believe assuredly these things are true. Why is it that five people can hear the same gospel message? Three people will believe it. Two people will disbelieve of the two who disbelieve. One will be on the fence thinking about it. But of the three that believe, they'll stand there and they'll say, I'm telling you, this whole thing is strong and true. And I believe it. It's because God, the Holy Ghost, is doing something down on the inside that lets people know this is real. This is true. That's right. So when you read Genesis one, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And and you're thinking, wow, the spirit of God in you is like, yep, that's exactly how it happened. That's the assurance that, that, that God alone is able to give. And when the word of God is continually pounded into us, scripture says faith comes by hearing. And hearing by means of the word of God. If a man or woman is not hearing the word of God, faith cannot increase. The only thing that can increase if they're not hearing the word of God is disbelief and unbelief and a doubt and stuff. So you say, well, why is it that people don't believe the word of God today that Jesus is the savior? Because they don't hear the word of God taught. You can't hear this taught and not believe it if you're a Christian. But if people deny it. You've got somebody saying to you, well, we're not really sure that Paul wrote Thessalonians. You know, it could have been fabricated in the third century. Or you have somebody said, well, well, we're not really sure Jesus was actually raised on the third day. That could be something that the gospel writers put together a few years afterwards just to try to embellish the truth and make the story more interesting. If you begin to entertain those thoughts and you begin to embrace them and hold on to them, I, I give you my word, you'll lose any kind of assurance that you have. Because you're already wrestling with it on the inside, and I don't even know if it's true. So you're not even assuredly uh, believing that it's true. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the last thing I'll say about verse 5 is you find a church where the word of God is taught but not believed. And I can promise you, you'll never see anything supernatural in there. There won't be any genuine conversion. There won't be any genuine growth. In a, in a believer's life, because they have someone telling them, I know I have to preach this as a vocation, but I'm really not sure if it's true. But I do need to tell you, because that's why you hired me to be here. See, right. You hired me to tell you this, even if I don't believe it. So Paul says in the first sentence of verse six, you became followers of us and of the Lord. Having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost. You know what the affliction was. Acts chapter 17 talks about the riot, the attacks on the Christians. But yet they still exhibited joy in God because they were glad to receive a savior who delivered them from their sins. He said, become a follower or imitator of us. Every Christian should be able. To tell other people to follow them. Follow them. If, if, if I was an unbeliever and I didn't know God and you were the only Christian that I ever came in contact with, I should be able to follow you in your lifestyle and still make it to heaven. If I never had a Bible, but just saw you all the time, I should be able to learn from you and imitate you and be able to do whatever I need to do to get to heaven. And remember, years ago when people were illiterate in the South and people couldn't read, the only thing they could do was imitate somebody else. So, so the, the, the preacher has a, has a very, very important position in the sense that people typically follow what a preacher says. I don't know how many times I've had people ask me, 
Do you think this is okay? Am I allowed to do that? Is this fine? See, they ask that question because they generally they, they want to know. And and if 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 someone says yes or no, then that's going to determine very often how they're going to order their steps. So when someone comes to you and they ask you a question about the application of God's word to their life, don't just blow them off. This could be something serious to them. They may be wrestling with this at night, trying to figure out whether or not to let the kids do it or not do it, whether they should do it or not do it in the marriage, should go here and not go there. Paul says become a follower of, of us. So it's good to have uh, good people that you can imitate. All, all the pastors that I had, I thank the Lord for them. They, they, were, they were good mentors, fathers, uh, mothers to me, and, and set a wonderful, wonderful example to me, of what I should believe and what I should do. Because as a, as a kid learning about God, there was a lot I didn't understand, didn't have a clue. Uh, but proper discipleship is, is something that should go on with the, the older ones and the younger ones. So you have a convert comes out of sin and into the kingdom of God. But now the convert needs to become a disciple. And a disciple is different and more than a convert. The convert is new birth. A disciple is disciplined living. Somebody has to teach a person how to do this. Because this, this taking up the cross and living for the Lord every day is not easy. And some people backslide because they think it's too hard. As soon as they become a Christian, their world falls apart. Their spouse says, I didn't marry a Bible thumper. So why in the world are you going to church? And if you're going to be going to church, that's just going to be the end of our marriage. And he or she really loves their spouse. So now they're in this situation where they've got to make a choice. Do I do I stay with God or do I go back to the way that I was? And if they don't have somebody speaking into their life to give them some good direction, they'll turn and walk away from the king. For the love of of a spouse. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Verse seven. So all of you that were examples. To everybody that believes in Macedonia and in Achaia. So e- even they had to be examples to other people. We, we all learn to imitate others and people learn to imitate us. But from you, the word of the Lord, it, it, it spread out. See, he says, sounded out. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. Now that's a good thing. Paul went to Thess- Thessalonica and 21 days he preached and probably stayed longer. But because of what he put in those people, the faith of God went into the different areas. And that's how it should be with all of us that love the Lord. People should know about churches that believe in God. Yeah, they should know. They should hear the stories and the testimonies. Now, this this past weekend, Tiff and I went down into Cortland, Kansas, and uh I had to speak down there for for a, a group. And as we were driving in, I told Tiff, I said, it's always amazing to me how many small towns there are out here where there are Christians. You know, and so we got we got down in there. And, and after the meeting, I was telling some of the folks, I'm just glad to meet some more people who are part of dad's family. See, More Christians I had no idea you folks were out here. There were a a pair of twins that were ORU graduates living in Mankato. I said, oh, my goodness. I said, tongue-talking twins in Mankato? What kind of a world is this? What are you doing down here? And they just looked at me and smiled. 
But but this is this whole thing. It just it just amazes me how many Christians there are that genuinely and passionately love God. And I think the testimony is powerful in your church. I guarantee you if if you're in a church where you don't have uh, strong, passionate believers and you are one, I bet you everybody in that church knows who you are. Hear that? I guarantee they know who you are. If, if you're surrounded by people who, who are who are not in concert together with their faith in believing in God, but they disbelieve, but you're the one that really does believe. When something comes up in that church, they'll say, you need to contact uh, so-and-so, because I think they really do believe in some of that stuff. They, they really do think God answers prayers, so you might want to talk to them. Yeah, I'm telling you, this. I, I hear this all the time. And, and whether it's a letter... That, that comes in the mail to me from the radio or whether it's every now and then coming home and there's a, there's a call on the answer machine. It, it, people hear that stuff on that radio program and they, they honestly believe that I believe what I'm saying on that radio. And, and so I get letters sometime and they say, Brother Darrell, we live in such and such place of Nebraska or Kansas or something. And, and, and we're out here and there's no churches within 40 miles of us. And then they'll just start naming Different kind of churches that are out there. But they said, we can't find any that will believe anything. And the pastors don't want us around because we actually believe the Bible. And so I, I read the letter and pray over the letter and pray for the people. Sometimes even call the people on the telephone to thank them for taking the time to write that letter to us. And, and that brings a whole lot of encouragement to people. But here's the point. Whether it's here or Red Cloud or what we do in friend, everybody knows I believe the Bible. I don't have anybody come up to me and, and say, well, you know, you just don't strike me as somebody that believes the scriptures. Anybody that's ever heard me know that, that, that I take this book to be, to be true. You're saying, Pastor, you honestly believe that that whale swallowed Jonah? If this book said Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd be preaching that. See, that's, that's all there is. That's all there is to it. Okay, verse number nine. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I want to go easy when, when, I, when I talk about this. But to, to turn people from idolatry towards truth is not always easy. Because the, the Greek and Roman religions that these people adhered to, their family members had been doing this for generations. And so now you're coming along trying to tell them that what great great grandma and all of them did from four or five hundred years ago, what they did was wrong. Now that is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the only way to change that so that future generations can, can have it even better is for them to accept who the Lord Jesus Christ is. If you have a living and true God, that must mean you have dead and false gods. And there are. Have you ever really thought about why this year we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation? Have you ever really considered how divisive it was during the 16th century when Martin Luther was writing all of those books about the Roman church and the Roman church had authors writing a lot of books about uh, Martin Luther and the Lutherans. 
it was a very difficult time. Very difficult time. And <clears throat> I've had people ask me before, and, and I get letters like this too. <clears throat> well, Daryl, if, if someone's not Protestant, but they're, they're part of uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, you know, where sometimes they still use icons and images in their worship, or they're part of the, the Roman Church, do you think, you think they can be, be Christian? I said, well, the people started the Protestant Reformation, all of them were Catholic. So, so the idea that, that a, a Catholic can't be saved, that, that's kind of crazy, you see? Because they all, that's where it started with the Protestant Reformation. However, when you grow in grace and in knowledge and you begin to see things differently and you can see how important Christ is, then pretty soon you start just kind of letting certain stuff just kind of fall by the wayside. I've heard this over and over again when I've talked, talked to people. Now, not too long ago, I was having a conversation somewhere where I had to speak, and afterwards, a group of people gathered around me, and so I had a couple here, and and this couple, they were they were Catholic, and, and devout Catholic, and they they let me know that. I said, "Oh, that's 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 good, okay." And so, the, as they were talking with me, the 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 father was walking in and out of the building, you know, just back and forth, and he's got his eyes on us. He's looking. He wants to know, is, is, is Daryl over there trying to evangelize his people? He didn't realize his people's over there evangelizing me. And so uh, all of this is, is going on. And, and the lady said, uh, she said, now watch this. I'm going to have fun with, with, uh, with Father so-and-so. And, and so Father came in, and, and they said, uh, Father said, we're over here with Daryl. He's trying to get us into the Protestant church. And then the Father just walked out. Then he came back in, and then the husband said it to the father. Then the father just looked, and he, he went back in. And then the third time, he came over there where I was. And I think he was offended at what they were saying because he, th- he thought what they were saying was true. So he, he comes over there to me, and he says, now, he says, what y'all should be doing is trying to get him out of that Protestant thing into this Roman Catholic thing so he can be in a real, genuine, true church because he's missing out on mass and he's not able to partake of the Lord's body. And without that, you're lost. And so I I, I tried to keep my composure, you know. <laughs> Had to keep from laughing first, you know. Kept my composure. I just said, I said, you know, Father, so-and-so, I said, you, you've got many admirable qualities, but evangelizing a Protestant is not one of them. I, I said, I said, elephants will roost in trees before I kiss the Pope's ring. I said, no, I can't, can't do that. I can't do that, you know. But, but here's the thing. In, in so many of my conversations with people, you'd be surprised how many people are in the Roman church, know the truth, and don't believe the Pope's the head of the church and that salvation is only in the Catholic church and they don't pray to saints and all of that. Billions of them. You say, why are they in there? I don't know. I can't tell you. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just telling you that the word of God is the one thing that can turn us from death to life. You see, that's it. it it's God that has to do the separating towards the end. And to, to conclude with this, in, in verse number 10, now he says to wait for his son from heaven. So Paul believes at the time he's writing this, Jesus was in the heaven, in heaven on the right hand of the Father, whom he raised from the dead. Again, he affirms his belief in the resurrection of Jesus, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So Paul knows 
There's wrath ahead, but it's not for us. It's not for us. Revelation chapter 5 speaks of the wrath of the Lamb of God. I told you that. That's not for us. Paul never believed that the, the things that are going to take place in the future that are not going to be nice, that those things were appointed for us. And when we get a little further on, we're going to see that Paul knows that one day Christ is going to come back. We're going to be reunited with him in the sky and in the heavens. And the scripture says, encourage one another with these words. So for you who are tired of paying taxes, that's only for just a little while longer. Yes, yes. For you who don't like to fill out a whole lot of paperwork when it's time to work on your organic farm, that's just a little while longer. See, just a little while longer. And for everybody who's, who, who just can't wait for retirement, just a little while longer. See, that's all. But one day, we're going to see him face to face. We're going to be united with him. The questions we have are going to be answered. But in the meantime, we're just going to do like Paul taught us, to live prayed up, packed up, and ready to go. Ready to go. So you, you don't have to worry about date setters and all of that, what day the Lord's coming back on. I'm telling you, when he comes, you will know it. Somebody texted me yesterday, and they said, are you, are you watching the eclipse? I was standing outside. I text back. I said, yeah, I'm watching it. But I said, I'm also listening for a trumpet. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I hear something. Then I text back. I said, no, it's a dog barking next door. I said, I guess I'm going to be here another day. Hit sand. (laughs) Come on, let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we have an opportunity to look into this wonderful book. And as we spend several weeks, God, looking into Thessalonians, we pray that you give us insight concerning these latter days. Lord, prepare our hearts and our minds for when we deal with those verses that are going to talk about the Antichrist and what's going to be occurring when the church of the Lord is called away to be with you. But Father, we thank you for all that you're doing to prepare our hearts for the day we see you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Amen.